Welcome once again. We are now in the third week of a sermon series on the book of two Thessalonians in the New Testament. And uh, this sermon series is titled Waiting Well. The Apostle Paul, who was a follower of Jesus and who planted the church uh, in Thessalonica, he wrote two letters to the church. And he kept encouraging them in those letters to wait well, to wait wisely, to wait eagerly for Christ to come again. The Bible promises us that Jesus is coming back again to make this world beautiful once again, to make this world perfect once again. And just as the Apostle Paul kept reminding the Thessalonians to wait well, every one of us, we too need reminders to wait well till Christ comes again. We're going to be looking at the second chapter of the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. We're going to read the first few verses. We'll read the last few verses later. I've requested Sarita to read the verses for us. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. to come up for us on screen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or, a, or by a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming, to him, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. A good pastor or a good elder will not only encourage the congregation, uh, he will never hesitate to also gently correct the congregation when such correction is needed. And we see the Apostle Paul doing this in this chapter. In the first chapter, as we saw over the last two Sundays, Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians in their hardship. But in this chapter, we see Paul correcting them. In the, in the passage we just read, Paul explains his reasons why he is writing this letter. The Thessalonians have, have become unsettled by a false teaching, allegedly from Paul, though it wasn't, that the day of the Lord has already come. Look at verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So some Thessalonians had fallen prey to this false teaching, 
that Jesus has already come back again. They were alarmed. They were confused. They were scared. They were shaken. Have we missed the second coming? Have we been left behind? Or have we put our faith in something that wasn't really true? As Paul says, they were shaken and alarmed by such doubts. And so Paul's writing this letter to correct them. As we look at Paul's correction, I want to draw three things for us from this. The correction, the warning, and the encouragement. A correction, a warning, and an encouragement. Let's start with the correction first. As you read Paul's words, I'm sure you can pick up some of the concern that he was feeling in his heart. How can you be so easily shaken by such false teaching? Paul seems to be asking them. How could you pay heed to this false teaching? Have I not taught you everything? Paul tells them. This is perhaps a, a gentle and a, and a mild admonishment. Paul is correcting their understanding and certainty and expectation of the second coming. That's what's happening in this chapter. What about us? How do we view the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus? Unlike the Thessalonians, I'm sure none of us uh, believe that Jesus has already come again. But are there any errors in the way we view the second coming of Jesus? I think there are two ways in which we, all of us, myself first, two ways in which we go wrong, two errors. The first error is if the Thessalonians were shaken by the false teaching that Christ has already come back, we are perhaps in error of living as if Christ will never come again. We live with a frame of reference that does not include the second coming of our Lord Jesus. All of us, all of us without exception, we are preoccupied with the joys and the sorrows and the pulls and the pressures of this life that we lose sight of this truth and this reality that Jesus is coming back again. All of us, we dream our dreams as if Jesus is never coming back again. We are all creatures of anticipation. If you're going to be going on a holiday next month, you're living in anticipation of the holiday this month. If you're getting a big bonus next month, you're living in anticipation of that bonus this month. If you're getting married next month, you're living this month in anticipation of the marriage to come next month. Every one of us, without exception, we live in anticipation of that which we long and hope for. We live in anticipation of that which we believe is happening. So let me flip this. What is your anticipation and mine telling us about our greatest longing? How much anticipation we have for Jesus to come back again tells us how much we really believe in it. 
And that's the first error we are vulnerable to, living as if Christ is not coming back again, functionally, practically, in our day-to-day lives. The second error, and that's the title of the sermon, the second error is we are chasing the wrong dream. We are in error of longing for a new creation that does not include Christ in it. All of us have dreams for our future, desires, longings, plans, preparation. And so often, Christ is not at the center of our hopes. A better home, a better job, marriage, these are all good dreams, wonderful dreams to have. But where is Christ in these dreams? If we are chasing a dream where Christ is not at the center, we are chasing a wrong dream. You know, if you really think about it, none of us have the capacity to dream original dreams. None of us have the capacity to dream original dreams. Every dream we chase, every dream we pursue is in some way or another a deep longing for the new creation. We don't have desires that God has not given us. We don't have aspirations that God has not given us. We don't know of pleasures that God has not given us. So none of us have original dreams. And every dream, every desire, every aspiration we have is in some way or other an expression of this longing for the new creation to come. The problem is that we construct these dreams apart from Jesus. Jesus is missing quite often in your and mine, my idea of a new creation. What's the best life you want to have? What's the best thing you want to see for yourself happening in the next 10 years? Is Christ at the center of it. Jesus is the author and the painter and the builder of the new creation. If there is no Christ, there is no new creation. That's what I mean by chasing the the wrong dream. And just as the Thessalonians were in need of correction, we are in need. We are in need of correction. We need to reimagine our dreams with Christ at the center of it. That's the first thing I wanted to draw for us from the passage, the warning. The second thing we want to look at, the, the correction, sorry, that was the first thing. Correction was the first thing. The second thing we want to look at is the warning. Having corrected the Thessalonians, Paul goes on to help them understand what to expect before the second coming of Christ. The Bible is clear that nobody knows when Christ will come again. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day, Jesus said, An hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Nobody knows when Christ is coming again. But the Bible does give us a lot of helpful information about what to expect before Christ comes again. And the verse that we read just now Matthew, from Matthew chapter 24, that entire chapter Matthew 24, is a very good description of what to expect before Jesus comes back again. 
there will be wars and use of war, famines and, and a great persecution and all of that. And so Paul goes on to explain all that Jesus said to the Thessalonians. Paul explains to them that there will be a lawless man who will emerge, the Antichrist, who will rebel and set himself up against God in every way. And this Antichrist will, will claim to be God. This is the man of lawlessness who will first have to come, Paul tells the Thessalonians. And then in verse 8, he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, obviously, there's a warning uh, for all of us in this. And the key to this warning is about this man of lawlessness. Now, we, we don't really need to speculate about who this man of lawlessness will be, when he will come, what he will look like, is he a CEO, is he... We don't need to get into any of those uh, speculations. I think we do need to know that there will be a man who will come and oppose himself and set himself up against God, but Christ will come and destroy him. Knowing this is, is sufficient. We don't need to get into a whole lot of speculation. But we must pay heed to this warning about lawlessness. And I want to take a minute to, to reflect on this warning. What exactly does lawlessness mean? The man of lawlessness. Lawlessness. God gave us the law, the Ten Commandments through Moses. And Jesus summed up the entire law in one sentence. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second. And so if loving God with all our heart is the whole point. If loving God with all our heart is the whole point of the law, then lawlessness is the exact opposite. If loving God is the whole point of the law, then lawlessness is to reject God. Lawlessness is to not love God, to hate God. And Jesus warns us about this in Matthew chapter 24 talking about the end times. Jesus says in chapter Matthew 24, verse 12, he says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. When lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will make us love Jesus less. In other words, lawlessness can simply be defined as loving other things more than Christ. This is quite scary. And when you connect the first two points of the sermon, it becomes very, very scary. If the first point that I made from this passage is that we are all vulnerable to long for a new creation where Christ is missing, or in other words, we love, more, we love other things more than we love Christ. If that is the first point, and if the second thing I drew out from the passage is that, that lawlessness is not loving Christ or loving other things more than Christ. And when you bring the two together, do you see the danger we are in 
if we keep loving other things more than Christ. If we keep doing this, this is a dangerous place for us to be in as it opens ourselves up, makes us vulnerable to be deceived by the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness and the spirit of lawlessness will work slowly and subtly to stop us from loving Jesus. That's the warning the Apostle Paul gave the Thessalonians and to all of us. And that brings us to the third thing I want to draw out for us from the passage. The encouragement. So what is our hope? What is our protection? What is our safeguard against this lawlessness and against this man of lawlessness? And Paul gives us the answer in the last part of the chapter. Let me read this out for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 13, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 to 15. There's a typo there. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse tells us that we will be saved through our sanctification. We will be saved through our sanctification. It's a little surprising because we generally tend to think we are saved by our justification. We link our salvation to the moment we come to faith in Jesus. This is the moment when we are justified before God by Christ. That is the moment we are saved. And the sanctification that happens after that is the continuation of our salvation. And that's quite true. We're all saved by our justification and our sanctification, which is an ongoing, lifelong continuation of the salvation that began with our justification. Let me take a minute to, 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 to unpack this for us. There are two phrases, justification, sanctification. I'm going to add one more, glorification. Imagine for a moment with me that, that this white handkerchief we have is, is the righteousness of Christ. And if this is us, not white, sinful, messed up, struggling, when we come to faith, when the Spirit of God regenerates us, brings our hearts to faith in Jesus, in that moment, we are justified. We are clothed, we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. That's what we mean by justification. Now, even though we are pronounced righteous, we are considered righteous, we have a legal standing of being as righteous as Christ himself before God's presence because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ by faith. We are justified. The reality is, if you take this and peep inside, which you can see for yourself and I can see for myself, there's still a lot of sins remaining. And this process in which we are being transformed more and more, little by little, day by day, into the image and likeness of Jesus, that is called sanctification. It's interesting that we are justified first. We are first pronounced hundred on hundred in God's presence. 
even though we might just be two on hundred inside. We have first God in His grace and His mercy and His love through the work of Christ. He first pronounces us hundred and hundred on hundred, legal standing with Christ, absolutely justified. And then for the rest of our lives, we grow from two to hundred, two on hundred to three, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, and it goes on for all of our lives. And then as Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, when the Lord Jesus comes again and we are gathered to him in that moment, the Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, we experience what the Bible calls glorification. Glorification is simply what was 2 on 100 or 5 on 100 on 10 on 100 inside, even though it was 100 on 100 on the outside, when Christ comes again, when we are joined with him, it becomes 100 on 100 in the inside and on the outside. It is always 100 on 100 on the outside. On the inside, it becomes 100 on 100. We become like Christ, completely sanctified in every way, glorified. And the word glorified means we are like Christ. How God created us, perfect before sin entered the world. And that is glorification. And this passage talks about all three. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, that sanctification, and belief in the truth coming to faith, that justification. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, glorification. Let me tie this all up. Paul is saying we are saved through our sanctification. So what exactly is Paul trying to communicate here? Paul is not trying to separate justification and sanctification, but he is just trying to place an emphasis on our sanctification. Let me bring this home. In other words, Paul is asking us a very simple question. Is your sanctification the biggest dream that you are chasing? Is it? Is your sanctification the most compelling, the most captivating? Is, the most, is your sanctification the fiercest of your dreams? That's the question Paul is calling every one of us to consider. If you're chasing the dream of a successful career, you may or may not be sanctified. But if you chase the dream of your sanctification, you will have a joyful, fruitful, and fulfilling career. If marriage is the biggest dream you're chasing, you may or may not be sanctified. But if you chase the dream of your sanctification and your partner's sanctification in marriage, you will be joyful and fulfilled in your marriage. Listen, we are a privileged people. If you, if you compare ourselves with the rest of the country, we are a privileged people. And that is the grace of God. Most of our careers will grow and flourish. I don't think that's a surprise, given the places of privilege God has graciously placed us in. Most of our careers is going to flourish. Most of our marriages will most likely flourish. But five years from now, 
I can guarantee you, 10 years from now, I can guarantee you that your deepest joy will not come from your success in your career or in your marriage. Your deepest joy will come from your sanctification in Christ Jesus. Sanctification is a process in which we are being changed more and more into the image and the likeness of Jesus. 10 years from now, more than your career success or anything else, it is us growing in the likeness of Jesus that's going to bring the deepest joy in our hearts. This is simply because sanctification brings joy that is inside out. The joy of sanctification, the inside out joy of sanctification is independent of outside circumstances. Nothing can take it away. But every other success Every other success brings joy that is outside in. The outside and joy of success is entirely dependent on outside circumstances that you and I have no control over. And so the outside joy of success, the outside and joy of success is temporary. The inside out joy of us becoming more and more like Jesus, that is eternal. You should know this. You should know this in the world that we live in. What good is it if you get promoted five times in a year, but at the end of the fifth year, you're laid off in a recession? What good is it? God forbid it. But, but if you do get laid off, only your sanctification in Jesus can give you the joy and peace to weather that storm in your life. When we face the storms of life, our past success will not comfort us and shrink us. Imagine if you're laid off, are you going to cheer yourself up thinking, I got promoted five times, it doesn't matter that I'm laid off. No. Our past success cannot be your joy and strength and comfort when the storms of life hit us and hit us, they will. It is our sanctification in Jesus. It is our intimacy with Christ. It is our dwelling in Jesus that is going to be the strength and the comfort in our times of trial. So Paul is encouraging us, decide today. Make your choice right now. Are you going to chase the dream of your success or are you going to chase the dream of your sanctification? Do not chase the wrong dream. Do not chase the wrong dream. But how? And that's the question we all wrestle with. It's the question we all struggle with. It's, it's a question I was struggling this morning. How can I keep my heart steadfast on Christ? How can I keep my longings fixed on Jesus? How can I make sure that I'm dreaming more of my sanctification than I'm dreaming about my success? The Apostle Paul gives us the answer to the question in the last two verses of this chapter. Verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. 
comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Jesus gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. I want to focus on this phrase, good hope. There is a good hope and there is a bad hope. Good hope is sure and certain. Bad hope is fleeting. Good hope will never disappoint us. Bad hope will surely let us down. Good hope gives to us. Bad hope takes from us. Paul is helping the Thessalonians see that Jesus is the only good hope who gives us everything. This verse says that Jesus gave us good hope through grace. Jesus does not ask us to do anything. On the contrary, he gives us everything. He laid his life down for us. He took the punishment that was due for our lawless lives. He took that upon himself. He took that upon himself so that we could be loved, accepted, embraced by God. That is the only reason why Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. He died on the cross to bear God's just punishment for every one of your sins and mine and the sins of everyone who would believe in Jesus. So the good hope of Jesus gives us everything. Every other hope, <clears throat> apart from Christ and independent of Christ, is bad hope. Because bad hope takes from us. Excuse me. <clears throat> You see, if you want a good career, you have to give it years and years of hard labor. 10 to 14 hours a day for the next 10 years. That's what you have to give to the hope of a good career. If you want a good retirement, you have to give yourself to 30 years of savings. You have to get into those SIPs. Diligently, month after month, you have to keep giving, putting into the SIPs. Every year, you have to increment to adjust for inflation. Only if you give, you have to give and give and keep giving and keep giving for 30 years for the hope of retirement. If you have the hope of a good home, you have to give EMI for 20 years. But if you want Jesus... He will give himself to you for all eternity. You only need to believe in him. You only need to receive him. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to give anything. Jesus is the only good hope. He's the only good hope who gives us everything. Every other hope, because it takes from us, is not a good hope. It's a bad hope. All of these hopes are beautiful in their own right, 
only when they are centered around Jesus, only when Jesus is our ultimate good hope, then all these other hopes make sense in our lives. But if there is no Jesus, all of these good things are just bad hopes that suck the life out of us, leave us fatigued, leave us depressed. Every other hope demands from you. It takes from you. It makes you toil. Only Jesus offers you the good hope that gives everything to you and takes nothing from you. And that is why Jesus is the only good hope. And that's not all. This passage tells us one more beautiful thing. This verse tells us that Jesus gives us eternal comfort and good hope. Some versions translate that to everlasting consolation and good hope. No other hope can offer you everlasting consolation. Every other hope has a shelf life. If you're married, you or your spouse are likely to go be with the Lord first. A job, it's not eternal. It can satisfy you some, but not eternal. Nothing is eternal. No other comfort is eternal. Stop chasing wrong dreams. Let's start dreaming of our sanctification in Christ. Let's start longing, for, let's start groaning for our glorification in Christ. And when we do that, Christ himself will be our eternal comfort in life and in death. Let us pray. Father, we pray, Lord, for a complete reorienting of our hearts. Lord, what we see your word call us to do, we are incapable of doing in our own strength, Lord. We are incapable of placing Jesus at the center, loving him more than anything else, except that your spirit would enable us to do so. Except in the context of gospel community, we are stirred by one another and by your spirit and by your word to do so. So we come and by faith we pray a simple prayer with repentance in our hearts. We pray, change the desires of our heart. Change the most basic longings of our heart, Lord. Help us to dream of a new creation with Christ at the very center. We worship you, Lord. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.